an opportunity this morning to look at this section of the Gospel of Mark. It's, it's kind of unique to me as we looked at it. Uh, you have Jesus sending out the twelve, two by two. And then in the middle of the story, you have this thing with John the, the Baptist. You guys with me? And then at the end, you, he goes back to talking about the guys he sent out. And so as I looked at that, I, I, I want to try to get into the head of Mark when he's writing it. Why did he break the story, stop in the middle, tell us about what happened to John the, the Baptist? And I think, um, I think that uh, as I studied and as I looked at it, I think God led me... Uh, to what, what was on Mark's heart as he comes to that section. So let's take a look at it, and hopefully I can uh, bring you guys along with me on the journey. In verse 7 it says, And he called the twelve to himself, and he began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. So the first thing we see, is that it's kind of interesting, you don't want to run too far past it. Jesus, unlike all other rabbis at his time, he picked his own disciples. That didn't happen with rabbis of his time. Rabbis of his time, the disciple would choose the rabbi. He'd be walking around and he'd say, you know, I think I like that guy over there. I want to I go learn from him. But in Jesus' case, we saw Jesus pick the twelve, right? He went and told them, come follow me. He, he handpicked those guys. And here we see him using the same term. He called them, come to me. And then he called them for a purpose, right? What was the purpose? To send them out. He called them in. To send them out. He does the same thing still today, guys. He still calls us in so that he can send us out. There's a purpose, a plan, a meaning behind the things God's doing and how God's working and moving in our life. And it's interesting because if you look at what he gave them, not only did he choose them, and not only did he send them out, but he sent them out two by two. In other words, he didn't send anybody alone. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. And one of those is that we would realize that we're never called to be an island. We're never called to be uh, all by ourselves out in the middle of no place without anybody else with us. You look through the Bible. Who did Paul have? Barnabas. Right? We work our way through over and over and over again. We see God still sending them out two by two. Sending them out together so that not only would they have the opportunity to have uh, comfort and fellowship with the other one that's with them, but also more than that for the Jews, right? When you went and ministered to a Jew, a thing was established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. So you got two guys going out two by two. They're working together. They're functioning together. In fact, Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us all about that. That one witness will not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter will be established. But the last thing that we see is the important part. The really important part that sticks out about these guys getting sent out is that, is that last phrase. Jesus gave them power. Jesus gave them authority. It's not ours by birthright. It's not ours by any right or, or claim that we can lay on it. It is Jesus. And He gave authority to them. He gave them power over unclean spirits. Right? Isn't that what the Word declares to us? He gave them power. How do we have power today in, in sharing, in witnessing, in, in, in uh, uh, 
sharing our faith with others, we have power because Jesus gives it to us. If we try to do it in our own, on our own strength, our own power, it won't work. Ever. It won't work. Well, you can't function that way. You don't got the juice. You don't have what you need. You don't have the boldness. All of that stuff comes through the Holy Spirit, which Jesus gave to us. His power. His authority. In fact, if you think about it, look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's known as the Great Commission. And if we look at this whole section, this is Jesus' word, if you will, to His church. When Jesus leaves, this is what He has to say to His church. He, he lays out this form. He says, Jesus came and spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. All power. He says, I got it all. I got everything that's necessary for what I'm asking you to do. Look what he tells them. So go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them the things, uh, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. So the same commission that he gives at the end of the Gospels, he's laying out to his disciples here. And I think there's a reason. You remember last time we talked about some of the issues when we look at Christ and the things that he taught and the things that he said. Some of those things um, cause people a bit of angst, right? They want to reject parts and pieces of the message that Jesus gives. And the reason they want to do that is because they've, they've got a worldview. They've got a, a, a view of life that is in opposition to God's view of life as he declares to us in his word. And because it's in opposition, there are, they'll have objections about some of the things that, that Jesus teaches and says. So they want to reject bits and, and, and parts and pieces rather than change their worldview. Rather than assume my worldview is wrong. I come sometimes to the book or I come sometimes to the teachings of Christ and I say, well, my worldview can't be wrong. God's worldview has got to be wrong. The Bible's got to be wrong. What they say about it, that's got to be wrong. But not my worldview. Surely, my worldview, my view of life, the way I see life, well, that's, that's perfect. That's perfect. So people would have problems with the things that Jesus taught and said. So now he's sending out his disciples. And they're going to experience the same thing. They're going to experience people receiving them and people rejecting them, right? They're going to experience people hearing what they have to say. What message do they go preach? The same message that John the Baptist preached. The same message that Jesus preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Right now is an opportunity to radically change your life and to go in a different direction where you're going to have God's blessing and God's power and God working in your life. That was the message that they're going with. That they're preaching. And that, that's the message with which they're working. So we look at verse 8 and 9. Look what it says. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And sometimes when they would travel, they'd wear two tunics so they could use one as a blanket. You know, you're, living, you're out, you don't got no place to sleep. You're a little cold. If you got two tunics, you got something to keep you warm. But it's interesting, Jesus tells them, don't take none of that stuff. Don't take no money. Don't take no food. 
Like, this is kind of a, a, a radical thing, right? You, you, you kind of get in the picture because they're going to be out for a while. But no money? Well, what if I wanted to stop and get a taco? I can't get a taco? No tacos. I, what, can I bring a sack lunch with me? No, no sack lunch. Nothing. Take nothing with you. And as we look at these things that he, he tells them, it's interesting because these four items of clothing are the exact same four items of clothing that God told the children of Israel to have with them when it was time to leave Egypt. He said, no, when the Passover is ended, these are the things I want you to have. Your staff, your sandals, your tunic. I want you to to have these same things that he's talking about here. I don't want you to have all these other stuff. I don't want you to have the other things. Why? Because I want you to be free of all the encumbrances that are going to hold you back. When you look at history and you wonder why, you guys know, we look at history of World War II and the rise of Hitler and the beginning of anti-Semitism in, throughout Europe. Everybody knows the story, right? Six million Jews are going to be killed in a variety of concentration camps. Do you ever wonder why they stayed? And you know, things didn't just go from cold to hot. Things slowly changed. Their rights were slowly taken away. Slowly, bit by bit, they started moving them from here to there and stripping their rights away from them. But they never left. Why? Because they had the encumbrances of life. How can I leave? I can't go right now. I got, I got, the, I got the bakery right here. And if, if I leave, what, what, I got to leave all that behind? No, I'm going to stay. So what did they end up losing? Everything. So when God called the children of Israel out of Egypt, He said, let it all go. And trust me. Now what did God tell them? God told the guys leaving Egypt an amazing thing. He said, don't worry about all that stuff. Just take what you can carry. When you leave, your neighbors are going to come out and give you money and gold and stuff to take with you. And they're like, yeah, sure they are. Is that what you would think? But as soon as they start to leave, the neighbors are so happy that they're leaving that they come out and start giving them money and giving them gold. The point of the whole thing is to lay aside all that stuff you're holding on to so tight and trust God for it all. He knows what you have need of. So we trust Him. And that's what He's telling the disciples. I don't want you to trust in your money. I don't want you to trust in your abilities. I don't want you to trust in all the stuff you can plan for. I just want you to learn to trust in God and experience a little bit of what it's going to be like for you one day at the end of all the story when I turn you loose on the world. So a little training period. He's he's getting them focused, free of encumbrances. Look, He's also having them bring the barest of essentials so that they put their trust wholly, squarely, everything they got in God. It's like this. It's like the Israelites leaving Egypt. They, they left traveling light so the world's cares wouldn't, wouldn't blunt their urgency to go. The world's cares ever blunt your urgency to go? Well, I go, but I, if I went, I, what am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about that? How am I going to let this all work out? But God's telling them to set those things aside. He wants us to be like Gideon's troops. Remember Gideon's troops? He got all this huge army getting ready to fight Midian. But the first thing God tells them to do is let everybody go who's afraid. 
You never do that before a battle. Because most people are afraid. And the same thing that happened to Gideon, he lost most people. But what was the point? So the ones that he had would have utter and total dependency on God. Everything for God, all on him. Like the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, they needed to trust in God that he would meet their needs, that he would meet their sustenance. That the advancement of the gospel would not be accomplished because of their unique abilities but because of the power given to them by Jesus Christ to go. The power given to them. Well, let's look at verse 10. It says, And he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there uh, till you depart from the place. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust uh, under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. Than for that city. So what's occurring? He's telling them, here's how I want you to deal with, with rejection and how I want you to deal with acceptance. When someone receives your word in the, in the Middle East, um, in the Near East as well, when folks would come, hospitality is a big deal. So you don't live somebody just staying in the street. So he's saying, when you go and you're sharing the message and someone says to you, hey, come stay with us. Remember Jesus said, don't bring nothing, no food, no, nothing extra, no money. When they say, come stay with us, go stay with them. And as long as you're in that city, as long as their doors are open to you, stay. You stay there. But he said, I don't want you bouncing all over the place. I don't want you staying here and thinking, yeah, you know, I was staying there, but they, they only serve Mexican food, and I want Italian food. And the guy over there, he's willing to cook me Italian, so I'm going to go stay with them. No, he said, they open the door, you stay. You're not there for what kind of food you're going to get or how much uh, comfort you have or how great a time you're having. You're there to share the gospel, right? So you're there, you stay in the place when the doors open. But what about the places that the doors slam shut? That, that Hebrew idiom, shake off the dust from your feet, it's just a picture of saying, look, I fulfilled my responsibility. I can't save anybody. Can you save anybody? Last I checked, none of us hung on a cross, right? So, all we can do is tell, right? So, I can tell somebody. If I tell somebody, they slam a door, or they don't want to hear, or they tell me, I don't want to talk to you about that kind of stuff no more. Whatever things they do, God's Word tells me I can shake the dust off my feet. That means I did what I was supposed to do. The ball's in their court. I did what I was supposed to do. I was a watcher on the wall. I sounded the trumpet. I said, Messiah has come. And you have an opportunity right now for your life to change in radical ways. But for one reason or another, their view of life, their worldview, how life fits in their mind was, was in uh, uh, direct contradistinction to what the Word of God says. So instead of receiving, they reject, they close the door, they turn their back. So God says, shake off the dust. You told them you shared he says it'll be better in the day of judgment the day of judgment will come all men will stand before a holy and just god all men all across time and the bible tells us that there are levels of of judgment and in them those levels of judgment he says it's more tolerable for sodom and gomorrah which were wiped out it'll be more tolerable for them 
on the day of judgment, when they stand before God and they're still utterly lost, it'll be more tolerable for them. Because nobody was walking through their streets preaching. But you guys are walking through these streets telling them, repent, the kingdom of God's at hand. An opportunity to radically change your life is here, right now. Right now your life can be radically transformed. But if, unless your worldview is in, is in uh, violation, it just can't receive the things that God has to say. That's what he was talking about last week. He was talking about those things last week. So now he said, I'm going to send you out and you guys are going to experience it. And you're not going to take nothing with you. You're just going to trust in God and God's going to meet your needs while you go. And when someone receives it, you stay with them. And when someone rejects it, let it go. You, it's not yours to carry. Like the dust on your clothes. You don't carry the dust on your clothes everywhere you go, do you? Do you get up in the morning and you go, oh my gosh, I've I got to wear my dirty pants because it's got all that dust on it. And I want that dust with me. i got to take that dust with me wherever I go. So I'm going to put on my dirty pants so I can wear my dirt, dirty, dusty pants. i got the dust got to be with me. I know you do, Noe, and you got to wash your clothes. But what do we need to do when we get dirt on us? What do we do? We wipe the dust off. Wipe the dust. That's not yours to carry. It's God's job to save. It's your job, my job, our job to tell. So we let it go. We let those things go. It's interesting because then as we, as we move from that place, it says then in uh, verse 12, So they went out and preached that people should repent. Same message. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So we see the kind of ministry that they had at that time. At that time, what God had sent them to do was preach the gospel. It was the gospel repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Right now is the opportunity to radically transform your life. Right now, you've got a chance to send your life in a totally different direction. And then he gave them power. Power to, to cast out the, the demons. So we see that they had, they had power. They could cast out demons. We see they had a message. The gospel. The gospel message hasn't really changed all that much. And then they had service. What was their service? They anointed the sick with oil. And they were healed. And anointing the sick with oil. The anointing is the same thing that we do today. We put oil. When we pray for somebody, we, we anoint them with oil. We put oil. The oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that God might heal. That God would do that work. But... Oil was also, you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? When the Good Samaritan found the guy beaten up by the robbers, what did he do to him? He anointed his wounds with something. What did he anoint it with? Oil. He put oil over his wounds and he put wine over his wounds. Because both of those things were looked at as uh, things having a medicinal property. There was a medicinal property behind it. So what do you see? These guys are serving the sick. They're serving them. They're anointing with oil. They're praying for them. Some of them are being healed. But even those who aren't being healed... Are, are having their circumstances made better as a result of the disciples being there. They brought the gospel, they came with power, and they came in service. And so they went around all the area of the Decapolis sharing all of these things. So Jesus sends them out so that they might experience a little bit of what he experienced. Remember last time he's standing in his hometown and he's trying to declare to them the gospel. He's Messiah. Their lives can radically change. You remember they said, you're, you're, you can't be the Messiah. You can't be the Messiah. They rejected him. He's got to leave that place. He can't do any miracles there. He can't do any work there because the people don't want him there. Now his disciples are, are experiencing some of the same thing. 
So we see a call to go. <clears throat> Jesus gives a call to go. Guys, come here. I want to send you out. You're going to experience this. But every call to go also has sorrow to follow. Because there's some lives who won't receive. And so Mark turns to tell us about Herod. And it's an incredible story if we just take a minute and we slow down a little bit and we let what, what it is that Mark's trying to tell us about Herod. See, it's really not about John the Baptist at all. It's about Herod. What's happening to Herod. Let's look at verse 14. It says, now King Herod heard of him. Who's he talking about? Jesus, right? King Herod heard about all the stuff Jesus was doing. <clears throat> For his name had become well known. And he said... John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. So, guilty conscience. Yeah? I'd say he's got a guilty conscience. Others said it's Elijah, and others said it's the prophet, or, one, or, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, No, nah, this is John, whom I beheaded. He's been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not. Listen to this. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. That's an interesting thing. We're going to come back to that verse in just a minute. So what do we see? We see it now the view changes same story, okay? You've got John the Baptist preaching the gospel. Scripture tells us then Jesus began to preach that gospel. Same gospel Jesus goes out with. John the Baptist gets arrested and all that stuff that we're going to read about in just a moment. Then Jesus, as he's rejected from his hometown, calls his disciples, sends them out with the gospel. Get three different guys out doing gospel work, all at the same time telling people, now's the time! To see your life radically transformed as they, as they go around to the various places. And the example that, that Mark chooses to focus on at this point is Herod's. Herod, look at... First they said, who is Jesus? We've got to decide who Jesus is. Herod was pretty sure it was John the Baptist. He had a guilty conscience. That's going to play in the story in a minute. Other guys, they said, <clears throat> he's, the, he's Elijah which was promised in Malachi, the coming of Elijah. But if you remember, Jesus said, John the Baptist, if you can handle it, John the Baptist came in the power of Elijah. He was the forerunner for the Messiah. Then they said, he's the prophet, which is a, a title for the Messiah. The one spoken of in Deuteronomy by Moses, that there would come a prophet that the people should all listen to. What's his message going to be? The prophet's going to come. Whatever he tells you, you need to listen to. What was the message? Repent. Now's the time to change your life. The opportunity for your life to be radically transformed is here. Messiah is come. Others said, well, he's just like one of the other prophets. Just, he's just a normal, everyday, <coughs> ordinary prophet. Everybody's got to decide, right, who Jesus is. That's a big key. That's a big key to it. But then it's interesting because it's, it begins to talk about Herod. And Herod's response to the message of John. Herod's response. What did it say about him? First, he feared John. Now listen, 
Herod wasn't afraid of John. He's in chains and he's in prison. He, Herod's not sitting outside the gate going, oh, I'm afraid he's going to hurt me. That's not the kind of fear he's talking about. When the Bible talks about this kind of fear, what it's talking about is a respect. That Herod would come and see John and he respected John the Baptist. He respected him. Well, what else did he do? He respected him. With the second thing, he protected him. Herodias wants to kill him. But Herod says, no, you're not killing John. You're not killing John. He, he protected him. But look at verse 20. If we look at verse 20, in fact, I'm going to look at it in two different translations. I encourage people, anytime you read or anytime you study the Bible, I always encourage people to read five different translations. Because remember, we're dealing with translations and we want to understand and we're at the mercy of the translators. So the key is, when we, lose, when we use five different translations, sometimes the meaning becomes more clear by the other translations that we're reading. It helps us recognize and understand. And if you look at verse 20, in the ESV and the NLT, the ESV and the New Living Translation, it's going to help you understand. So it says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. The New Living Translation says it like this, for Herod respected John, knowing that he was a good and holy man, and protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John. But even so, he liked to listen to him. What you see when we kind of delve into the language of verse 20 is kind of a unique deal that we, we might not get if we're in too much of a hurry. That means that Herod used to go to John the Baptist, down to his prison, and he would talk to him. He would let him out, and John the Baptist would preach the gospel to him. And you begin to ask yourself, why? All John the Baptist ever had to say to Herod was what a knucklehead he was. <clears throat> he would tell him over and over again, Herod, you need to repent. Change your direction. Now is the time. Today is the day. Change the direction you're headed. God wants to radically transform your life. The kingdom of God is at hand. Over and over. In the, in the Greek language, what we understand is that Herod would go do this so many times, the Greek word tells us it was a, a continual habit of Herod, that he continually was going to hear John speak. Continually going to listen to the words that John had to tell him. Constantly wanted to know. But then there's that little phrase. You hear that little phrase in the ESV? In the NLT, it says, he was perplexed. He was puzzled. It cost him. See, when he heard the message, when he heard what it was that, that John was telling him, something happened inside of him. Something happened as his worldview, as his view of life collided with the kingdom of God. His view of life collided with what the word of God was teaching. His view of life collided with the message of John the Baptist. And something happened. It caused a perplexity. It caused... It caused apareo. Apareo. Sometimes it's easier to look at the word when we deal with translations and, and, and help us understand. Apareo. Let me give it to you like this. Let's say that I went to the gym. Don't laugh. <laughs> I've seen some of you hold your hand over your mouth right then. Oh, as if. So let's just say it happened. I went to the gym and I'm, and I'm going to get on a treadmill. So I turned the treadmill on. But whoever's on the treadmill last time 
had that treadmill smoking. Levi was on it. And he just, and that thing was going. So <clears throat> I don't pay any attention. I turn the treadmill on and I get on it. And there's that moment. It's a brief moment, but there's a moment when one of two things is going to happen. That moment is aporeo. I am either, my body is either going to adjust and I'm going to start running fast and I'm going to be on track. Or I'm going to eat it. Do a lip skin on it, get squirted out the back, and, and somebody will put me on YouTube for what a, what a knucklehead. One of those two things is going to happen. Apareo. Poreo is to be on track, moving in the right direction. Apareo is to not know what to do. To come to a crossroads and not know which way to go. To be puzzled, perplexed. There's other words that describe this same kind of an idea. In fact, in James chapter 1, it talks about... The, the, the man who, who asks without doubting. You know that, that section? To ask for wisdom without doubting? For the man who doubts is a double-minded man. The word is, is dupsychos. Dupsychos, it means he has two minds. He has two minds. He's got two paths he could go on. And he doesn't know which way to go. Perplexed. He's poreo. Uh, a poreo. He doesn't know where to go. When Herod would hear the message of John the, the Baptist, it perplexed him. It caused him to come to the place of a doubt. I don't know what to do. And today in the church, sometimes when we talk about it, doubt is a bad word to say in the church. I'm not sure why. But doubt is a bad word to say in the church. Because a lot of us come to, to church, when, when I talk about church, I don't like the word religion. If you ever have any time to talk to me about religion, I'm not a big fan of religion. Religion is, if I perform, then God will do for me. That's religion. I don't have that. I have a relationship. Because of what God has done for me, I obey. Because of what God has done for me. It's a different mindset. If I come with religion, i got to say, man, my, i got to have perfect faith, good faith, solid faith. I'm <clears throat> saved by faith, right? We got that messed up. We got that messed up. And if we mess that up, then we look at doubting and we say doubting is... It's always negative. It's always bad. But the scripture tells us in, in Jude that we're to have mercy on the doubting. Why would God say to have mercy on the doubting if, if doubting is always a bad thing? Doubting always requires something of us. And it always has something to tell us and teach us and can move us forward with God. But we, there's a few things we got to do when we face doubting. When we look at doubting. When we look at what doubt is all about. The first thing that I would encourage you to do when you come to doubt is notice, understand that it's a window of opportunity for you. Doubt is a window of opportunity for you. Remember I told you, there's Herod hearing the message from John. Today's the day of salvation. Now is the time. Your life can radically be transformed right now. And Herod stumped at the crossroads. Don't know which way to go, but he liked to listen to John. So continually, he's getting together with John. And he's spending time hearing that message. Doubt comes into our lives so we can make a change. Doubt comes into our lives so we can make a change. Remember I told you, sometimes people look at it and they say, Man, it's my, it's my faith that saves me. So my faith's got to be perfect. 
I got to have this incredible quality of faith. And if I have that imperfect quality of faith, I can get caught in this stuff too. I get this perfect quality of faith, then, then I'm saved. And that is wrong. It's not the quality of faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It's not the quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith. It's not your ability. It's what Jesus Christ has already done. That saves. It's like this. You ever have dreams of falling Falling, fall, fall, fall off a cliff or something. You know, you wake up before you hit the ground. <clears throat> In that dream, let's say we're having a dream, falling off a cliff. Ah! It's a long fall. It's a long story. As we're falling down that cliff, I notice coming toward me a little branch. In my mind, I think, oh, man, I don't really know if that branch can save me. You see me? I got maximum velocity going. This little branch, I don't know. I don't know. So I have 10% faith that that branch can save me. And as I come down to that branch, I reach out and I grab it. And it stops me. Am I only 10% saved? Well, I think I'm all the way saved, aren't I? I didn't hit the bottom. It wasn't the faith, the quality of faith that saved me. It was the branch that saved me. It was the branch that saved me. When I'm falling and I reach out to Jesus Christ and I lay hold of Him, that yes, my doubts are going to call me to change. We're getting to that. Hold on to that in a minute. But the point is that that, that, that doubt, that crossroads was a call to Herod. Do something with the message. Do something with it. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the message that's been laid out for you? You know, it also doesn't just happen to unbelievers. It happens to believers. Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a a psalm about a believer. Goes through a really hard time, difficult, difficult, difficult time. He's ready to give up and walk away from the faith. And he says, my feet almost slipped. Same picture like the treadmill, right? My feet almost slipped. And then he got his footing. He took a better road than the road of Herod and got himself squared away. So doubt, it's not always bad. There's good things that occur as a result of doubt. But here's what doubt does do. Doubt shows us the faults in our foundation. The faults in your foundation. In other words, doubt shows you where your worldview, where your view of life is in opposition to God's. And when you come to that point, that moment of doubt, you got two choices. You can either say, my worldview is more right than God's. Or, I can recognize that there needs to be a decisive moment of change in my life. I'm either going to catch my footing on the treadmill or lip skid. You're going to do one of those two things in life. When you come to doubt, you're either going to catch your footing... And go on and recognize this is a fault in my worldview. And that fault in my worldview, the fault is my worldview. I need to change it. I need that to be changed in my life so that God can do a perfect and complete and whole work within me. Or, I reject it. 
And I say, he's too ordinary. His message is not right. There's too many things in that message I can't agree with. <clears throat> in which case, I am saying, my worldview is more right than God's. It shows us the faults in our life. You see, John is challenging Herod's worldview. Think about Herod's worldview, because John rocks Herod's worldview to the core. Herod was a money, a grubby, power-hungry dude. Nobody wanted to be in Herod's family. They were always killing each other. They were always doing whatever they could to get the next rung of power. What happens if you're a power-hungry guy like that? You're lonely. Don't you think? Because nobody wants to hang out too long. He, cared. he killed everybody. He killed his kids. killed his wife. He's killing people all over the place. He was not a good guy. He had the worldview that said, everybody is out for something. You know anybody like that? Everybody is out for something. Even if they look holy, even if they look right, they're all out for something. They're trying to get over. They're trying to climb the ladder of success. And so I can justify whatever I do because I'm just doing the same thing they're doing. I just do it better. So I'm on top and they're on bottom. So Herod would look at everything in his life through that worldview. But then he comes to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, the only guy in the entire region who would tell Herod the truth. Who would say to Herod, Herod, you're living in sin. Right now, you're living in sin. You need to repent and let your life radically be transformed right now. You have your brother's wife. It's not lawful. It's not okay. That kind of makes it sound a little better. Let me... Let me go back into the reality. When he's, what he's talking about is, you're married to your niece. And that was against the law of Moses. Get, 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 stop. You've got you to gotta let that relationship go. And it made Herodias, the girl, made her so mad she wants to kill him. But Herod won't let her. You see, he's hearing, he's hearing and he's saying, man, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe my life is, is messed up. And, and so he's trying to align his worldview with what John's talking about. He said, well, what is it that John's getting out of this? What is it that John the Baptist is getting out of this message? Nothing. What do you mean? He's in prison. He's going to lose his head any time. All he's got to do is make Herod mad enough to take his head. But John's the only one telling him the truth. And so he looks at him and John the Baptist rocks Herod's worldview. And he says, according to my worldview, if everybody's out for themselves, and I see this guy and he's totally not out for himself. He's totally doing something that's utterly and completely sacrificial. In fact, think about some of John's words. I must decrease and he must increase, right? Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He's got this humility, this attitude, and it just rocks Herod's view of life. And so he's at the crossroads. He's at that point where he's tripping, and he doesn't know what to do. Fall or run? Get with the program or get away from it? He's at that place. So doubt shows us the fault in our foundation, the problem with our worldview. But the third thing that we've got to remember about doubt, 
Doubt requires decisive movement. If I stall on that treadmill, what's going to happen? Does the treadmill stop? Does it wait for anyone? Treadmill waits for no man. It'll just spill me out. So in that moment, when I'm at that place of doubt, when I'm at that place of being puzzled, when I'm at that place of perplexity and I'm thinking, dude, I either got to run or I'm going to eat it. I need decisive movement right now. Decisive movement right now. And that's where Herod failed. He just kept going and getting John the Baptist out. He kept going and getting John the Baptist out. I want to listen to him some more. Go get John the Baptist out. I want, I want to hear one more time. Go get John the Baptist out. Man, this guy is really, I really like what he has to say, but, but I don't really know what, I'm, what to do with it. So I'm going to do nothing. And then one of the saddest verses in the Bible, you, you go too fast, you miss it. Verse 21. In verse 21 it says, Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles. High officers, chief men of Galilee, and Herodias. She was willing to make a decisive movement. She knew Herod's worldview. Herod, the most important thing to Herod was that he looked good to the men of power around him. The scariest thing would be for him to, the, his power base to begin to erode. She knows that. She puts a plan into work. The window of opportunity opens for Herodias. And the window of opportunity closes for Herod. That's sad. And when it closed, it closed. This is the last time you're going to see Herod think positively in any way toward the gospel. The last time. Hard heart is coming the scripture goes on to tell us so Herodias daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him and the king said to the girl ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you and he swore to her whatever you ask me I will give you up to half my kingdom so she went out and said to her mother what shall I ask and she said the head of John the Baptist immediately she came in with haste decisive movement right She's ready to go. Let's get this done. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But why did he do it then? Because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him. He did not want to refuse her. Because of the guys that were watching. He didn't want to lose face. So he's finally faced with a moment. Something's got to happen. He's been at the crossroads for day upon day upon day. Message upon message upon message. He's heard it, he's heard it, he's heard it. And now something occurs in his life that forces a choice. And he falls back to his worldview. He falls back to his understanding. And he closes the door to the gospel. Shuts out his heart. Same things the disciples are experiencing when they're going out to the Decapolis around the Sea of Galilee. Same thing Jesus experienced in Nazareth and many other towns as he shared the message that he had to share. The worldviews colliding with God's view. 
And we have to decide which one is worthy of our trust. So the scripture tells us, So, though the king was sorry, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. In the beginning of this story, I told you, Herod's feeling guilty. He's still haunted by the choice he made. He's still struggling with the fact that he killed John the Baptist. And he liked John the Baptist. And he would bring him out to listen to his messages over and over again. Even though his message was constantly, repent from your sin, Herod. Get right. Let your life be radically transformed. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's a time for change. But then what happened? The next time you see Herod, Jesus will be standing before him. And Herod will mock him. And Jesus will not say a word. The door was closed. The time was past. The opportunity to move had come and gone. Right now, Herod's feeling guilty. But in a few more chapters, he's not going to care at all. His heart will be closed off to everything that God wants to do, to the things that God wants to work in his life. See, we think like Herod, you and I, we think we have control of our heart. You're sure you have control of your heart. I can choose whatever I want. Anytime I want, any way I want. But the reality is, we don't have control of our heart. And where at one moment we find ourselves at a crossroad, questioning, wondering, is this a step I should take? Is this the way I should go? Is this what I should do to transform my life? We're at that crossroads, but we don't take it. And we don't take it. And we don't take it. What does Scripture tell you happens? Same thing that happened to Pharaoh. Heart gets hard. You don't get the choice no more. No decision is a decision. And you turn away. So when we look at this and we see this section of scripture and we see the collision of worldview with God's view, we see the collision of, of faith and our misunderstanding sometimes where we think it's all about the quality of our faith instead of about the object of our faith. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In fact, the greatest thing, we're going to come to it in, in a few weeks. We're going to get to Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, we're going to meet a dad who's got a son who has convulsions, right? He's throwing himself into the fire and he's falling down all the time. And so he brings his son to Jesus and he says, Jesus, can you heal him? And Jesus says to him, well, yeah, I can heal him if you believe. And so the dad said, well, I believe, but sometimes I don't. I believe and sometimes I, I, I struggle with this. I, I, I find myself at the crossroads. I don't always know which way to go and what to do. What did he say? Help my unbelief. If Jesus was religious, 
he'd tell him, you need to go home and work this out so you can come back to me with purity of faith. And when you come back to me with purity of faith, I'll heal your son. There are some teachers, by the way, on TV that'll tell you that. Bit of malarkey. What did Jesus do? You can look at it. It's Mark chapter 9. That father said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus healed his son. Why? Because Jesus meets us right where we are. If it's 10% faith, he can save us with 10% faith. He said, if you come to me with a faith like a mustard seed. That big? Mustard seed's kind of small, in case you were wondering. Faith like a mustard seed. That's all God needs to work with. But it requires decisive action, not inaction. I can't stand to the message and say, Ah, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I, I, just, I just can't. I'm just not sure I can buy it all. Just think about what you're logically saying. I know more than God. I don't believe none of this is God's word. Even though you can see all the places. Visit. Even though every time it talks about something, you go dig in the ground, there it is. Even though there's a a hill of evidence, we can't prove it, but there's a hill of evidence. Reasonable faith, right? Reasonable trust. I can take that direction. But you say... Your view of life. What you see is right or wrong. You know more. So I can't receive what it is that that I think God is saying. There's a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. I don't know if you guys know of him. He's extremely difficult to read. But if you ever read him, he has this thing he says. He says, sin is building your identity on anything besides God. Sin is building your identity on anything besides God. When your worldview comes into collision with God's view, what has occurred is your Savior is having a collision with the true Savior. And I don't know what your Savior is. Your Savior is whatever you love the most. Your Savior is whatever thing you worship. Your Savior is whatever thing you're clinging to. It can be family, it can be friends, it can be any number of things apart from Christ, but Whatever it is, you're a slave to it because whatever is your Savior, you're a slave to your Savior. And when our worldview, when I'm facing doubt, in that moment, I got a choice. I go with Jesus or I take a left turn and I say, nope, I'm away from that. I think I know more. I think I got it all worked out. And I'm believing that my Savior can save me. And I'm throwing away all the evidence and the truth and the value of the Word of God, and I'm going my own way. But I would say when we come into collision with God's view, God is showing us where our lives are in error. And He's asking us in that moment when we're tripping, when we're stumbling, when we're not sure which way to go, to follow me. Don't you hear Him saying it? All throughout Scripture, follow me. Just follow me. Don't be afraid. I know you don't understand it all. Just follow me. Just follow me. There's this woman, believer, lived in Virginia. Something horrific happened to her. And when that horrific thing happened to her, she found herself in Psalm 73. She's slipping, she's tripping, she's ready to walk away from the faith. She's like, 
She's like, I'm in such a dire place of doubt, doubting the truth of God, the love of God, all this stuff. So I'm in this place of doubt. You know the one thing that turned her around? She recognized in her doubt what the issue was for her was that her Savior would never allow something bad to happen to somebody good. And it came into collision with the truth. It came into collision with the real world. And what ultimately turned her around and got her on track and took her to a place where she said, yes, I can follow Jesus through this, is this point. The most horrific thing in history to ever have occurred to another human being happened to the best, most perfect human being ever. His name was Jesus. And the most violent violation ever occurred to him. We can't even really begin to fathom it, really. We, we can't really begin to fathom it. Because you and I, we think of the pain and the hurt and the rejection and all that stuff. But that's just a tiny, insignificant point compared to the fact that the only one who had never known separation from holy God had God turn his back on him. God the Father turned his back on God the Son. And God the Son cried out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And when she began to realize, if God who loved his son above all things, would do that to his son in a moment when nobody really understood what was going on, yet he works through that, this most incredible, beautiful work of salvation, so that men across the world can be saved, then it is possible with me, a less perfect, less good individual than Jesus Christ, that whatever is happening in my life or going on in my life, there is space for Almighty God to do what He's already done before in the life of Christ. She realized her worldview was colliding with the true view of God. And when she realized that, she made a decisive action, stepped off, kept working, kept following Christ, stayed on the path. She stayed where she needed to stay. She accomplished what she needed to accomplish. We have to trust in the object of our faith who bore for you and I everything that would hinder. There's nothing that we can't look to Christ to see Him having paid the price over, for, through. He's done it all. He took it all. He is the ultimate cornerstone so what happens he tells us the story of herod so that you and i can make a choice of what we need to do not to be herod you hear the message over and over again and you may even like it and be semi-entertained by it and you find yourself at a crossroad that says i feel like god's calling me to do something but I have not acted decisively. 
My worldview is colliding with God's view. And I'm just staying in that place. You're following the example of Herod. And something happened in his life that made him choose. And he chose wrong. Scripture tells us in verse 30, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Don't you think sometimes God just wants a break from all the broken hardness of folks who won't take that step? Won't make that decision? Who are battling with doubt in their mind but won't make a decisive step in a positive direction to follow Christ? To realize that the problem is me and my worldview, not God? So he said, let's go to a quiet place. They don't get much quiet. We'll see next week. They don't hardly get a breath. But they... Try to go away someplace quiet so that they could deal with it. Jesus was willing to go withdraw to a quiet place over and over and over and over again. So the message this morning, as we close out, man, my prayer is, don't be like Herod. Don't hear it over and over again and get a hard heart. Not be able to step off and follow Christ. You say, my faith is not perfect. Well, that's okay. Jesus' faith is. Give it to him. What that dad did, right, was give him the faith he had. What did the little boy do to feed the 5,000? Gave Jesus the lunch he had. It wasn't much of a lunch. Was it going to feed 5,000? Nope, we'll talk about it next week. Not going to feed 5,000. Not going to feed him. But he gave it to him. What did dad do with a little faith? He gave it to him. You need to give it to him and let him do that perfect work. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.